0: Hi, everyone, and welcome to Office Hours. If you're watching on YouTube, you can, of course, find out more about what we do on officehours.global. Our first hour is a general discussion of production and IT-related topics where we answer audience-submitted questions. Second hour, we typically do a deeper dive into a topic. And today, Wednesday, is often our audio day, and we're going to do a second hour focused on audio forensics, kind of 101, basically audio how to improve your ability to identify common audio issues, and hopefully fix them. So it should be a very interesting second hour. Mitch, it is time for our first hour producer questions. What have we got today?
1: Indeed, Bill. And the first one coming in from Craig Kadoki in Toronto, Canada. Yesterday's Office Hours was blocked by the NFL on Mukana and the embedded YouTube in the Office Hours website, but it pushed you to the video in YouTube site. Is this a new type of strike? I don't
0: think any of us were really surprised a lot. The NFL is very serious about their intellectual property, and they're pretty aggressive in terms of... Uh making sure that nobody is using their content without official permission. Uh, for most of you who have run into copyright issues before, you realize that um, Title 17, which is the part of the US copyright and trademark code that deals with this, does have an exception for criticism uh, under the fair use title. Uh, I think we could probably defend what we did yesterday because we were doing analysis of short pieces of the content, specifically looking at graphics and things like that. So I would think that if it we got actually sued, but that's not the same as a copyright strike and a YouTube strike, and everybody knows that's kind of a complex and mystical system that is employed. Mitch, you had a thought?
1: Yeah, according to the back end, we did not get an official strike uh, and the video may or may not be on our uh, website. so I'm not
0: ah, sure okay. That. So it was strikishly handled, but we don't know if it was actually, you know, I, I, everybody, we've been talking about this on the show for a long time. And I know Alex is very deeply involved in paying attention to that. There are certain things that he doesn't much care about in terms of uh, technical pushback um, and has a variety of accounts to handle testing and things like that. And we do a lot of testing here. So, uh, Courtney, you had some thoughts?
2: Well, I I don't know for sure, but you know, our site doesn't have monetization turned on and our YouTube channel doesn't either. So maybe what the bot does is if it detects copyrighted material just by automatic uh, image recognition, it throws it over to a separate YouTube channel where they can monetize it and forward the money uh, of the commercials that it inserts in it to whoever the copyright holder is. It's probably part of their legal compliance requirements.
0: Yeah, that wouldn't surprise me at all. I mean, this is kind of, I, I don't think the regulations and the laws, including Title 17, ever expected this to happen this way. And we see a lot of circumstances where things like audio mashups or video mashups are tolerated by the copyright holders because they understand that it helps promote their their material and elsewhere. But there are other circumstances where the copyright holder really does want to keep strict control over particularly Synchronizing their content, whether it's a song or a clip or something like that, with messages they may not approve of. So it's it's a difficult area that is still growing up, and I'm I'm glad that um, it's something we talk about here a lot, and I think we should continue to, because this is going to continue to evolve over time. Uh, and that's that's not even getting into the questions of what Midjourney and ChatGPT GPT and those things do uh, in terms of their impact on copyright holders and, and source material. And it's just a lot of swirling stuff about this topic. Interesting to talk about, and we will continue to talk about it here on Office Hours. But for right now, let's head off to the next question.
1: And it's from Douglas Carmichael. Would the Asus ProArt PA279CRV monitor be a cost-effective, at U.S. $449 on Amazon, first step into the HDR world, My M2 Pro Mac Mini supports HDR10 displays.
0: Uh, It might be. I know there's just so much going on now in terms of HDR. I mean, yes, it has been a few years since it became a popular standard. And yes, things like Apple's uh, incorporating a form of HDR into all their phones and those phones, and I'm sure Samsung is doing the same thing with their phones. uh, That means there is far more places where you can consume HDR content than there was five years ago, and I imagine that exponential growth in HDR is continuing to happen. Uh, I don't know specifically about whether a particular product, including the M2 Pro Max, uh, supports HDR10. I think uh, we need... People who are a little more familiar with that to give you a a definitive answer. But keep bringing these questions up here. This is exactly the kind of thing we're here to uh, discuss. Sometimes we have people on the panel who are informed about things that are about to happen or are coming up, uh, and sometimes not. So just uh, check back. Next question.
1: From John Foltz in Ceilings Grove, Pennsylvania, John asks, Audinate just introduced Dante Video to the PC. Is anyone actually using Dante Video? Isn't NDI easier? We're going to start off with Guy Cochran here, Guy. Whoops, you're muted,
3: Guy. If
0: you're not muted, then uh, we're not hearing you. I'm, some, there's somehow an air gap. in there you go. address it. And John Prado will take over the answer for a minute here.
4: So, uh, the problem with, with their video product is they kind of got stuck in the middle of the pandemic when they just announced the video product and It's all about the ecosystem. So they're way, way behind NDI now. I don't think that they have a chance now. I think that NDI's lead is so insurmountable that I'm not bullish on the the video product for Audinate.
0: Interesting. Guy, did you solve your problem? And no, still? Okay. So we'll catch you a little bit later on another answer, but hopefully that, oh, Nigel wants to weigh in on
5: this. Nigel. Actually, Nigel's got more of a question. Uh, Is the Dante video more of a hardware solution where at least You know, NDI, we can do all software. I don't know it's like the Dante audio, which you can just do with virtual sound card. There's not a virtual sound card equivalent for video unless I've misunderstood.
0: Yeah, and I i haven't read anything on Dante video, so I'm uh, in the dark along with everybody else here. Uh, it's a, probably a topic that is now going to be coming up. I mean, Dante, in terms of uh, we use it here on the show for our comms uh, communication back end, uh, it is a very, very useful tool uh, to make sure that shows can run on time. If they're pushing into the video area, this this doesn't surprise me at all because most people who do digital distribution over the net seem to be adding uh, all sorts of functions that everybody else has so they can be better competitive. And I wouldn't surprise me if uh, Dante is exploring that. John, you had some more thoughts?
4: So the, according to the email, I, I got the same email that you got today, probably, John, um, They've got two. Uh, they've got two video products. They got their main product, which is JPEG 2000 codec, which is super high resolution. In fact, I think 2110 is using similar codec for their product. And then they just came out with this H product, which supports H. X. It didn't say 264 and 265 is my guess, but it's lighter weight than the than their other product. And so I don't know if it's completely hardware based, but it's it's more like it reminds me of um, NDI HX.
0: It's interesting, since they have such a distributed, huge network of people using Dante Audio. Um, if they can successfully pull off a video backline for that, that should really help their product. Uh, Mitch, you had another thought?
1: Yeah, I was just going to chime in and say that uh, it's interesting because NDI came from NewTek, which is a hardware, mainly hardware company, and Dante is more of a networking company. So it's going to be very interesting to see what they do uh, to clarify and make it easier than using NDI. As I read um, many stories about NDI and some horror stories, is that the big problem with NDI can sometimes be in trying to manage uh, all of the updated and versions of it that exist on equipment through your system because you have different pieces of equipment with different versions of NDI. I hope that doesn't happen with Dante.
0: Yeah, fast-moving technology often runs into that issue, so we'll see. Um, I think that's enough for right now. Next question.
1: Mike Edwards from Brooklyn, New York, asking, Morning, guys. Has anyone used the touchscreen multi view option in Mix Effect with an iPad in production or similar option? What are the pros and cons of this workflow?
0: I have never and I don't know anybody who's using it um, on an iPad. I will say that I have been more and more impressed the more software I use, uh, whether it's Sidecar for my video editing or um, anything else where you're in the Apple ecosystem and you have an iPad as a kind of an adjunct screen. It seems like Apple has done that engineering really well and it's getting more and more and more useful all the time. so I would I would tend to think give it a try if you're at all interested in it. Um, and Mix Effects has written to this. This will probably be the standard uh, Apple APIs that they're leveraging, and those are usually pretty robust. And you get a, a pretty good pretty good experience when Apple ships something like that, puts into the core product. It usually works pretty well. So fingers crossed. And Mike, if you use it, let us know. Come back to the show and and drop another question and it'll let us know how the experience went for you. Next question.
1: In from Zach Phillips at Philadelphia PA. Zach says, what's the best way to control ATEMs via mix effect over the public Internet? Not interested in security discussion. Every forum question about this jumps straight to a security lecture. This functionality is required for my use case.
0: Uh, yeah, security. Well, okay. Uh, controlling... One thing via another thing over the internet is always going to provide security questions in here. Uh, Blackmagic is a big company, and I would imagine their security division to make sure that things don't get too out of hand is pretty robust. Uh, You're on the public internet, so that's going to put you open to at least the possibility of robust attacks on your system. Uh, And... We always go straight to the security lecture because I think all of us, anybody who does computing in the modern era and, you know, we're constantly adding utilities and add-ons to our programs and we're constantly hearing these, uh, the people who are professionals in the security thing says the threats are increasing and it is easier and easier to run into somebody who wants to compromise your security. So it's something we talk about a lot because it's important, frankly, Um, and I understand that if your use case is such that security is one of your primary considerations you're going to be assessing all of your software and your hardware in terms of how it meets that need. Uh, Courtney, you had a thought.
2: Uh, I don't know anything about Mix effect, but maybe Guy could speak on, speak on this. But a lot of times uh, when people need to do this, they'll, they'll use a, a VPN or a tunneling VPN with security to tunnel through. You have to know the IP address on both ends. And, um, and you have to punch holes in the firewalls, et cetera. So it's not easy there are easier ways to do that i don't know if uh if apple makes vpns available on the ipad which i think is where mix effect runs is that right
0: maybe yeah i'm not sure either guy do you know anything about that or did you
6: i mean it runs on an ipad i just i can't recall the security issues besides being able to port forward so if you know the ip address you could uh yeah like uh, courtney was saying you could punch a hole through and uh, get through that way. But I, I'm trying to think of an easier way to do it without having to open up a port. Uh, I, I mean, VPN would be the the way to do it. Uh, this is a question where Jonas and Tucker and some of the guys in the back end might have more knowledge on this.
0: Yeah, Virtual Private Network, uh, the, the VPN, there is all sorts of robust software for all these systems that can help you do that, but it's a little more technically detailed. Mitch, you had a thought?
1: Yeah, I just wanted to chime in and say that MixFX runs fine on Mac Silicon, so an M1 or M2 would work fine.
0: Yeah, and those have a lot of security features built into the chip itself, but we're talking about once you get to the Internet. Yeah, Nigel.
5: Yeah, I was actually just going to say what Mitchell was going to say, which is I actually every day run Effect on my Mac Silicon next to where i run the atm software control um, however the graphical interface that they talk about now where effectively and i think this may be another question where you can put up the cameras and touch the ca- touch the image i don't think that will run on the mac
0: Oh, okay so there may be some feature limitations if you're trying to do it through mix effect and maybe with a vpn to
1: meet your security needs mitch yeah, one looking into the crystal ball for uh, mix effect. Another uh, thing that's going to be cool is uh, you can use it with your Stream Deck, and if you can remote control your Stream Deck, you're, uh, you're in like Flynn. There. Also, there are Adams writing software to allow feedback between uh, the ATEM and Stream Deck, which will be really rather cool.
0: Yeah, from a security point of view, though, I guess what you don't want is somebody else jumping in and grabbing that control. So the question is end to end where are the vulnerabilities and does adding something like mix effect create a another target of opportunity for the evildoers out there uh it's complex and getting more so i think but time for the next
1: question paul wallace in austin texas asking is there a place to get distros for outdated macs that won't take the latest os courtney
2: well paul welcome to the 23rd century. Uh, there is a way, there is a website I found called uh, how to geek that has uh, a good um, get to it. There it is. Uh, a good uh, article on where you can get them. They are apparently available on the Mac, uh, you know, a web uh, their store on the Mac, Apple store, except they're not indexed. So you have to know have links and they have links on this how to geek website. I will post it in the chat, it also is is fairly difficult to install because you have to do some spe- jump through some special hoops, either that or download the whole image and burn it onto a DVD. So uh, I'll post that link in the webs in the uh, chat for you to take a look at.
1: Mitchell, uh, kind of a question. I have a, a cheese grater, old uh, old timer, and couldn't you install the original software it came with and then allow Mac uh, Update to bring it up to the latest version? I think in my case, it would be Catalina.
0: If you're like most of us who have every operating system we've used since 1984, yes. If you're one of those people who like to clear out the old uh, software packages and move on, probably not. Uh, that's it, There are a couple of sites on the web, and I can't remember any of them off the top of my head, that specialize in keeping uh, deprecated software around. So you can usually find them if you search enough.
7: Uh, let's see. Jeff Cohen wanted to weigh in on this. Right. And I would, if that particular site links you to Apple, that's great. I would highly uh, warn against uh, downloading this off of any third-party site because uh, you, you just don't know what's going to be in there and not worth the risk, in my opinion. However, if you do go to Apple Support or just support.apple.com uh, and click in the little uh, search tool there and search for uh download Mac OS and whichever version you want um, you'll see for many of them, um, I don't know how far back uh, a, a unique page with a download link for that particular thing and the, and then they have combo updates, which means current to that version for that uh, up to that version. John Preto
4: so I'm I'm a Apple dev, and I'm looking in there, and I think there's a way to get them. You have to search, but if you're an Apple dev, I think you can get them through their developer site.
0: But how far back? Don't they cut
4: off support? Yeah, they cut off. I'm CNL Capitan.
0: High back to Sierra,
4: 2017. Sierra. High
2: Sierra, I think is the yeah. last one that's available yeah. on the... Website. Yeah. The other way, the
0: other good source is uh, your local users groups. If they're Apple users groups or users group for the software you know, sometimes you go into those communities to identify the people who have been there for a long time and are generally helpful and are known entities. So, you know, they're not uh, fly by night people coming in just trying to get a security breach in there uh, and ask them whether they have an old disk or something like that, maybe even with a serial number that they are long out of date using. And sometimes you can secure
5: original software that way. Uh, appropriately. Nigel? It it may be an obvious comment to make, but uh, there are a lot of secondhand sites that will sell you a used Mac that will run a version of the operating system that's current. And if you are going to put an old version of the operating system on something you're going to put on the internet, it is open to not having the same security that the modern versions do. And I understand that Apple's model is uh, forcing you to upgrade every so often. But part of the reason to do that is financial for them. And part of the reason we, as we always talk about is security.
0: Absolutely. And that's an ever evolving thing. That's why Apple has gone just in the last maybe five years, so heavily into biometrics, they want you to do fingerprints and they want you to do uh, all sorts of things. And I I don't know about anybody else that makes me feel a, a good bit more secure. That my data is going to be at least protected from people trying to get to it on the inside here. There's, you know, the great hackers of the world can always find ways. But for the casual people, I think it makes things a lot more safe. Jeff, you have a thought?
7: And one more little tip I'll add doesn't help you now going backwards, but going forward, one thing I always do when you... Uh, do an install or an upgrade to the current version, you always have the ability to download that version, the current version, right then and there. And I always do that. Storage is cheap. Put it somewhere. And now you will always have that version. And then moving forward, you'll have all those versions if you ever need to revert or want to go back to them.
0: Yeah. And the other thing psychologically is I always find myself annoyed when I have to do two-factor authentication. But then I think to myself, well, wait a second, that is part of what is protecting me from somebody being able to get a hold of just my numbers and things like that. Uh, and so I'm more careful about trying to pay
2: attention to those kind of things than I ever was before. Courtney? Yeah, the problem with uh, Jeff Cohen's idea of storing the version when you get a brand new computer of the current version of the current operating system on a thumb drive or something is that it, it's frozen in time and doesn't have any of the security updates that happen in between then and when they deprecate that software. So even if you do have it, if they've already deprecated it, you may not be able to get any security updates for it other than you know it'll come with whatever security flaws were in it when it was first published.
0: Yeah. And that's what the hackers have had the most time learning <laughs>
2: to defeat
0: Jeff Cohen again.
7: Yeah, if I'm not mistaken, um you know, those updates at that point exist and and you will be able to update that version to the point they stopped producing updates for it. You know, so when they deprecate, they're not producing new modern current security updates for those versions, but whatever they did produce is available.
0: So there's some risk involved in using old, old stuff, but it's also a lot of fun. And there's there's robust communities about uh, classic software and things like that. So just have fun out there. Next question.
1: Douglas Carmichael asking, I've been testing universal control between my 2017 MacBook Pro and a 2023 Mac Mini. And I'm amazed if you were using a MacBook Pro for production and wanted to extend your display... Would you use it with an iPad or a cabled portable display like you perfect
6: guy? I'd say keep testing, test, 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 test. I'm always surprised when I move my cursor to the edge of the screen and especially with my iPad sitting next to it, it wants to jump over there. And sometimes I'm like, wow, that's a really cool trick. But, uh, part of me is like, Oh, this is just happening over wireless. If you're hardwired, it might be a different story. Uh, I do do use that you perfect monitor that you're talking about. And, uh, you can get one of these uh, visa mounts from Impact that'll allow you to uh, mount it onto a, a standard five A stand. So I've got it mounted on a on a heavy weight. Um, uh, we sell this is normally for like ring lights and whatnot, but it's a, like a five pound weight basically at the bottom. So then you can plug in your HDMI monitor and that U Perfect. Uh, if you get the seventeen inch, it is a four K. So that way you have more real estate as well. So. I would go the U-Perfect route if it were me in production because I wouldn't trust uh, Universal Control at this point unless you really bang on it. I mean, it's such a new feature, so I would stay away from it in in, in a hardcore production. But do as you way as you may. I always listen to guys' advice. It's
0: always proved to be good for me. Uh, I will say that. I have as many monitors, I think, as this computer can possibly handle. And uh, i tried to play a little. I thought, could I add one more? Could I use Sidecar? And uh, either with wirelessly or uh, with just a a lightning cable. And uh, I plugged it in. But then one of my monitors said, OK, you've exceeded your maximum limit. You're, You're already full up. And so adding that disabled something else. So there are limits to how much your processors can handle in terms of display screens. Just letting you know. Next question.
1: From Paul Wallace in Austin, Texas, Paul asks, how do you compress and decompress files in the cloud, for example, using zip and gzip? Mitch, you want to start us off? Um, I do. I I don't mean to be snarky, Paul, but you download it and then you decompress it. Um, The whole thing here is that the whole idea is having a compressed file uses less space, makes it easier to download it from the cloud. So that's the reasoning behind it. Guy Cochran?
6: Yeah, if he's saying in the cloud, like our AWS instances are are just standard uh, Windows server PCs. So uh, to compress, you would uh, select your file, right-click, and you would say compress as zip. And to uncompress, you would double-click, and you would say extract all, and it would decompress. So and you could put that on an S3 bucket, or you could have your local drives, but yeah, S3 bucket would then, there's some security settings that you could then say, share with the world or turn that on and off. But yeah, as far as compressing, it's just like any other PC. It's just a PC in Azure, Google Cloud, they're all the same. Jeff Cohen. Right. That's just it. There's there's no
7: one definition to what in the cloud means. So depending on what service you're using and how you're set up and how you're accessing it can determine how you can decompress it. Uh, if it is like, like I described, if it's just a folder, um, I mean, my iPhone can do that now if I'm using... Um, uh, uh iCloud Drive, I can just go to an iCloud folder that's in the cloud and just with my iPhone and the files app, uh, decompress that right there. if I need to perhaps uh, the use case would be I need to extract one file from that and then I can delete the rest of it and just keep the, the zip. Um, if you're accessing it just through a browser, then you need to do like uh, Mitch said, download it first and, and then decompress it and then deal with it all accordingly. Yes, and in light of our last discussion about security, I would say if I know where I got the file,
0: I'm, I'll am i double-click on it and hope that somewhere in my system it's smart enough to find the correct decompressor to open up the file. That is not a good strategy for things that come over the Internet to you if you're not absolutely sure where they came from. Just saying. Next question.
1: Tim Holm in San Lorenzo, California. Tim says, has anyone done a direct comparison of a beta SM58 versus an SEV7? People are saying the SCV-7 is superior, but have you heard them both? What would you recommend? And he's talking about a Shure microphone. Marty Adius. Marty.
3: Well, I I have to say that I have not done a direct comparison myself. However, comparisons can be very, very subjective because the acoustics of your surround surrounding environment, your electronics can all change and modify the... Um, the way the mic sounds. But what I am going to do is refer you to uh, some very valuable resources. There are these websites that will do very controlled comparisons between a whole bunch of different microphones. And I'm going to give you three. So one is called the Audio Test Kitchen right and you can choose from these microphones and they will show you the frequency graphs and you can compare them and there may even be some some of these sites even have um, audio files another one is recording hacks uh, is a microphone database that has all this information in it and then the third one is Micpedia.com, and this one is uh This one is a newer one is currently being compiled. And uh, shootouts coming soon. They are recording on a massive uh, database of mic recordings under control conditions. And uh, that will allow them to allow you to do comparisons microphone A and B comparisons between a whole bunch of different microphones. And there's lots of guidance here too.
0: That looks like a really good set of resources. Uh, I will say, having done voiceover stuff for the since the beginning of time, uh, microphones have characteristics, too. And, it, you know, it's going to interact with the voice in front of it. Some voices are low, some are high, some have siblings problems, some don't. Uh, your room is going to affect things substantially. So... Um, I, I think this is a brilliant way to start. And I think understanding there was one of those sites had a little learning to read mic, microphone specifications. So learning to get down into the weeds of that and understand self noise and, and the rest of the things that make a mic what it is. That's a, that's a fabulous foundation to have. But in the end, you're going to put a microphone in your room in front of you and record into it and learning to hear problems, learning to hear the qualities of the mic, uh, is the eventual goal to getting the right thing for the right use. Mitch, you had some thoughts?
1: Yeah, I wanted to add on what you were just saying, Bill, is that in my case, and this is not everybody, but I'm a voiceover guy, um, I have to hear it in my ears and have it in front of my face and do different things with it uh, using different statements and words and things because uh, the best test uh, that I have is my voice, which I'm very familiar with, so I can hear sibilance and things that uh, normally you wouldn't hear in a third-party recording of something. I'm not a musician, so I couldn't do that. So nothing will beat going to a guitar center or someplace that has, or B&H, and uh, doing an A-B comparison with the actual mics, which I have not done with that mic.
0: Yeah, I think those things are all really, and voices change. You know, the, if you just start out and you're doing the first time as a person reading scripts into a microphone, you don't have much conditioning in terms of your performance chain. You haven't been doing this for a long time. So your muscles that, that handle your lungs, your diaphragm, your jaw, all the rest of that have not been uh, worked out. And so your voice will actually change. I think the, the mic I used in my first year was different than the mic that sounded better in my second year. And now that I've been doing this for 20, 30 years... Uh, I find myself adapting to the microphone in front of me. When I'm in my voice booth with the the, uh, Neumann TLM-103, I perform subtly differently than I do when I'm on this mic because I'm just used to getting what I want out of the feedback loop into my head so that I kind of know how to work that mic a little bit differently than I work this one. These things all come with time. And that's the fascinating thing to me about audio is that it's an ever-changing ever-wonderful, ever-moving target. And you're constantly using these new tools and saying, can I get incremental improvement in what I do? Can I keep lowering the noise floor behind the signal that I want? And can I find things that react to me well? And can I perform into those microphones appropriately to get the best out of them? It's a a fascinating study. Uh, Let's go on to the next question.
1: From Chad LaFarge in Columbia, Missouri, and in our back end here, I'd love to hear Guy's response to that Dante video question. So would
0: I. So, Guy, can you uh, can we rewind a little bit in time to that question from earlier? Yeah. So,
6: when the first camera came out, Bolin had the the very first, they called it the world's first Dante AV camera. They shipped it up to me. I tested it out, and, and it came with the camera, but it also came with the decoder. And I was like, okay, how do I get this into vMix? And they're like, well, you need to then take from the decoder, you need to get another piece to bring it back into your machine, an SDI or an HDMI know capture card and I was like what that doesn't make any sense I'm going IP but uh where it comes in handy for so we're talking about full blown Dante there's two versions now so when I first got the first one it was not the case so you could not pipe it straight into vMix. Uh now the uh the link which we had the folks on from PTZ Optics they now have a camera that is the one of the first if not the first uh one here Actually, let me back up and show you the hardware first. So here, here was the world's first camera. And this is super low latency. The the benefits are 444 color, JPEG 2000, uh, but you have to use that hardware decoder. And you can route the video just like you would Dante Audio. You get the... the um, the app up and you can just point it wherever you want it to go. You, you have senders and you have receivers, senders being cameras or an, another encoder. So this was their latency test and they're getting less than 10 milliseconds of latency. The new camera from uh, PTZ Optics is, is the link and um, it has AVH. So AVH is the compressed, which will be an H- H.264 dot H.265 codec. So there's a variant now. And now you'll pay, <laughs> you'll pay to use if if you want to use AVH in the VMix, you're gonna you're gonna wind up paying for it. So it's now a let me pull up that pricing. I believe it's it's on the Dante AV site. It's it's 10 bucks a month to be able to use that codec. So it's it's interesting technology where if you don't wanna use NDI for whatever reason, um, I haven't tested the H.265 on that. It might be good, but uh, it's hard to say. It's four, four, up to 4K60, so um, I like NDI for our workflows, but if you need low latency, then you go with the hardware for Dante. If uh, you want to be a trailblazer and try the new AVH stuff, if there's a specific reason. I, I would just go NDI myself, but there, there are other reasons as far as uh, IP stuff that this can traverse easier. So there's, there's still a lot to learn. It's exciting technology. It's cool to see something besides just NDI um, you know, on the, in the marketplace now. Mitch Hill.
1: Yeah, I have a question for Guy. Can you use your current Dante infrastructure to go to AV?
6: Yeah, it's it's the same. So you want to have you know a switch that you're able to control, a managed switch, and then yeah, it's the it's the same stuff. Especially the lightweight version, the the uh, the full blown can can be a high data rate. It's five hundred to six hundred megabits per second for four K on the uh, on the full blown codec. I haven't seen the specs yet on the AVH stuff. It's so new. I mean, it, I don't even know that camera shipping yet. But yeah, with my first complaint to them, and I. I pulled them to the side. In fact, one of the guys, Tim Godby, who's the product manager for Bolin, uh, he's a regular watcher of Office. In fact, uh, InfoComm wanted to give me a hug. He's like, I've watched you so many times. I'm like, who are you? <laughs> so it's kind of funny to have viewers out there that they feel like they know you when they see you at a trade show. But yeah, uh, he gave me the scoop and he's like, it's coming, it's coming. And he was kind of giving the whisperings and that, so that was just uh, just last year at Infocom. and Now this year they have the actual shipping product and it's a, uh, you could download it today on the Audinate website. And uh, there's a seven-day free trial if you just want to try the codec out in OBS or vMix. In fact, uh, Tim did a great video. I'll put a link in the chat to the video that he put up, which demonstrates how to bring uh, AVH into uh, OBS and vMix. So he already has... You, you have to use something called Dante Studio. So it's a new app that you install on your PC. And then that is what bridges kind of like... a. NDI virtual input or NDI webcam, it it takes that signal and then makes it appear as a source in OBS or your, your favorite app.
0: Why do I get the feeling that we are in the absolute infancy of audio distribution over the uh, interwebs in this new world? I mean, it just seems like things are developing so fast. Nigel, you had
5: a thought? Well, I guess it was a follow on from the Dante studio point that Guy made. Um, in my simple world, the virtual sound card seems to work really well in my Max to send stuff to an X32, do I need Studio to recreate that similar experience in video into something like vMix or something else, and then pay monthly for the sub to get, is that what we're saying?
6: Yeah, exactly. So the DVS is still for audio, and then uh, Studio will will add in audio plus video. So vid- it's meant for video, though, yeah.
0: Is there play mostly around lowered latency, or is it? I mean, what 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 do you think they're targeting in video?
6: S- I haven't got to see what they're trying to do. I, I know on the hardware side they're trying to make it so that you can get that four 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 color because the problem with NDI for IMAG was that it it was, it was too much of a delay. So uh, it's if you're looking at a presenter on stage with a microphone and the LED wall is behind them, by the time it goes through whatever conversion to whatever it's going through, sometimes it's out of sync into the audience members. It's distracting. So the hardware version of Dante video, there's 10 milliseconds, which, I mean, it's, it's, it's imperceptible, so, uh, but with NDI, you definitely, you, you can you can feel it. So that's where some people just like hardware. They just, they want to stick with it. They love their SDI and they want to stay with it because it just works, you know, even with a minor frame rate conversion or something in the projector or somewhere else in the line, the switcher, or the router, somewhere in the line that you might pick up a, a few lines of, uh, of lost uh, latency. So it builds up over time though, by the time it goes through the entire chain, sometimes you're looking at somebody on, in real life uh, on stage versus the wall behind them or the projector. And it's like, what the world It's so distracting. So I think that that's their market is the heart, the best color and the lowest latency. And then with the new AVH, we'll see how fast that stuff is. We'll see how, how the numbers flush out.
1: Excellent. Next question. From Douglas Carmichael asking, in a picture of SMT's 3D Top Fonts Telestration system, There's a small musical keyboard located on the console. How could they be using it in a non-audio application?
0: That's interesting. And the link there is from sportsvideo.org. 3D top fonts, telestration. So in, in the past, in my experience, and my experience is very old with this, but when I was working in broadcast a good little bit, Chiron, with Chirons and things at the kind of professional level of that, you were very, very limited in the number of fonts that would work for video. I mean, video is a different raster than where most fonts are born is in the print field. Traditionally, that's where it's been. So we were always constrained. Things with small small. small serifs and things with lots of fine fiddly details were hard to put on video and have them look good because they just weren't designed for that purpose. Of course, as uh, television became a dominant advertising medium, there were font libraries particularly put into those early things like the Chirons that were just big and bold and slab sided and had big drop shadows and things like that because they would pop over any video content that could be put behind them. Now we have this hybrid world where you can literally take any font in your system and through these nonlinear editing systems or other video friendly apps, toss that on top of a video picture. And I can see, uh, as we move even further into 3D with beveled edges and stuff like that, uh, constantly kind of uh, having to figure out what are the right fonts to use in a video circumstance. Um, I'm not sure whether these 3D top fonts, whether this SMT system, which I have no experience with, addresses these kind of concerns. I would imagine we're going to see more and more of them, though, because more and more type designers are being asked to work in the video field as opposed to just with print. And um, the art directors I work with, I know they're all, this is on the radar of all of them, the men and women who sit there in big operations and are designing type to be legible and beautiful for things like Television graphics or corporate graphics or whatever are keenly aware that that sometimes they don't have all the tools they should. Courtney, you had, you're you're heavily into teleprompting. What do you see in this?
2: Well, this is only a guess, but uh, depends on when the software was designed. You know, MIDI is one of the few universal control protocols that has been used for years for controlling audio and video software and, as well as music. Uh, so perhaps in this situation, they just have a MIDI keyboard there so that they can set MIDI control protocol and assign them to keys so that you can switch quickly between fonts on the fly. Since it's a telestration system, you it's a live insertion program. So you want to be able to switch fonts quickly without having to go to a menu or select a different font. So maybe they're just using the uh, a MIDI MIDI keyboard to control the font selection quickly uh, on the side. And you can remember, oh, a C sharp is this font and a <laughs> See, natural is this font, et cetera. Well, that's it's just using MIDI control protocol to switch fonts.
0: You know, combination fonts and things, you know, we're going to do the initial part of this paragraph, but then we have a pull quote or something like that in the middle. In the old days, you really didn't have much control or choice over changing font midstream in that kind of uh, captioning or telestrator. Uh, world, Maybe they're giving more of that. Maybe this would be really helpful. I could see, how, yeah, if you could switch to a different weight or a different uh, font itself in the typeface that you're using through MIDI control, that'd be probably pretty useful. Uh, next question.
1: From Paul Wallace in Austin, Texas. What's your go-to drink in the morning to get you rolling? (laughs) Okay, we've got a lot of people in on this. Uh,
0: Since Guy is the uh, serious athlete amongst us, I'm going to start with him, and then we'll go through the rest of everyone.
6: Guy, take it away. What do you drink? I have a green drink called Amazing Greens that I I drink, but I I just switched to something new that I'm trying out today. Uh, And this isn't a paid advertisement or anything, but I'm trying out this sports drink called None. So it's like an effervescent thing where you just drop one of these things in. And then you stir it up. That's bringing
0: visions of Alka-Seltzer to me.
6: I don't know why. <laughs> None. Hydration sport drink. Give it a roll. Nice. But it generates
2: noise in your microphone. <laughs> That's
6: right. Uh, Mitchell Hill.
1: I used to drink Coca-Cola. Yes, I'm a former Coke addict. Uh, with the uh, with the drink, it uh, energized me and got me started. But then I started getting some uh, uh, medical issues with it. I'll make a story quick. Uh, it's that high fructose corn syrup is deadly. You should not be taking that. Uh, you're going to end up in the diabetes category very quickly. So I gave it up. And I'm going to tell you what, it was the hardest thing I ever had to do, uh, giving up that. So nowadays, uh, a classic glass of water gets me started.
0: There you go. Well, that that shouldn't hurt anybody unless you drink
2: way too much. Uh, Courtney. Courtney. I have one cup of coffee. Usually today it was a Kona blend, which I really like. Although it's heinously expensive, if you don't get the blend, it's only about ten percent Kona coffee, and Kona coffee is really great and really strong. Wakes me up in the morning. Uh, but I use different different uh, flavors as well. But today Kona blend.
0: And I looked down in the little corner at Nigel because I saw him up for this, and he was drinking something. I swear I thought you were drinking a pint of Guinness. No, it isn't. It's
5: <laughs> so. What are you drinking? It is not a pint. No, no, it's neither Guinness. I'm afraid I'm a coffee drinker. Mine is every morning. Um, although I am very conscious that the better thing to drink while trying to speak is water. Because the downside of coffee is it does leave your mouth a bit gluey sometimes.
7: I, I resonate with all that. Jeff Cohen. Rather than go over my drink, I'm just fascinated with Mitch. Because we didn't hear at least the attempt to switch from regular Coke to diet Coke. And... You know, get you through.
1: Hate it. Hate it. Hate the taste. The aftertaste. Forget it.
7: It does take some getting used to. Not that I'm advocating it, but um, I could only cause I made the switch and hated it when I switched to it. But eventually you get used to it. That's just the way it tastes. And and I don't really taste the difference. The regular stuff tastes too sweet for me. So not advocating it, but it's a good crutch, at least to get you off the sugar stuff for anyone that's trying to do that.
0: I still have, I start with one cup of coffee every day. It's, uh, and I I use coffee pods, but they're out of a company in New York called Taste that are recyclable at least. So, uh, yeah, I can't get past that. I like a nice medium roast, and one cup of coffee usually does it. After that, since I do a lot of voiceover work, I keep a a large cup of just room temperature water there. Not too cold, not too hot. Uh, Mitchell.
1: Yeah, I'd like to switch to that pond scum that uh, Guy is drinking. Where do I find that? <laughs> Anything that
6: looks too much like algae, I have trouble getting into. But Guy, uh, you're yeah. Uh, tell it's us on what A- you- Amazon. I, I put the link in the chat. That, that's good for you. I, I mix it with some other stuff, uh, some BCAA, uh, raspberry. I put a link to that as well, powder. And that gives it a little bit more of a sweetness. So it's it's a double it's a double dose. So it's does good that for you change. Come on, it'll put hair in your chest. If that's or green should. and the raspberry
0: stuff is is pink, what color does it end up being? I don't even wanna
7: know. Jeff Cohen, help us get out of this. And one last tip to wrap it up, if you're super clumsy like me, get yourself, and you're in your studio with all your gear, um, get yourself one of these cartoon-like wide mugs. And it looks silly, but you cannot knock this thing over unless you flip the whole table over. So super helpful because I'll knock anything else over. I need a sippy cup like a kid.
0: You're a rookie. I use the thermos that has tiny, tiny slits, and if you click the little thing over, it's completely sealed. keeps coffee warm for the entire show, so that's why I can only sip my cup. I can't drink the whole thing down. Anyway, we spent entirely too much time, but this was a fun discussion. Thank you all. Let's go to the next question.
1: Moving on with Douglas Carmichael, what chair do you prefer for long sessions in the studio? Would a DX Racer or similar gaming chair be a solid choice? Mitch is going to start us. Um, I have a chiropractor who's a very good friend of mine, and uh, when I brought this same question up uh, to him, he said the most important thing about a chair, uh, particularly if you're sitting in it for long periods of time, like a Zoom show, like we're doing here, uh, you need the lumbar support in your lower back, and it needs to be adjustable so you can uh, press there a little bit and give you a little uh, compression. And the other part is your thighs. You wouldn't think so, but lifting your thighs or giving them support anyhow is very important to keeping the proper curvature to your spine. So uh, the chair that I settled on is the famous Herman Miller Aeron chair in extra large.
2: Courtney, uh, I'm using the Lazy Boy. Yes, available from Bryant. No, uh, but, uh, and I, the way, reason I like it is because I have a bad back and like to rock back, and it changes like uh, Mitch says. It changes the whole seat and the back rock together, whereas some. Uh, some chairs you see, especially a lot of gaming chairs, you know, they have a tilt function on them, but it just tilts the back back, and and the horizontal uh, seat stays uh, horizontal, and that is not good because it doesn't uh, alleviate the pressure on your spine by being able to raise your thighs and tilt your uh, back back. But the Lazy Boy does the whole thing, Marty.
3: So I use a an imitation uh, Herman Aeron. It's got. Um, mesh on both the back and the seat, uh, which is hard to find. Um, Of course, that's not all there is to a good chair, but uh, one of the things that was mentioned is is uh, thighs, uh, how well they're supported. And I find that. Uh, the height of the chair is very critical because if you put too much pressure on the underside of the thighs, it will actually cut off blood flow, and it could cause—and I, I know this from experience—it could cause blood clots in your legs.
5: Ooh, that doesn't sound good, Nigel. So, uh, taking advice from a fellow panelists, I went and got a mirror too—a Herman uh, Miller mirror too, I think it's called. Um, the advice that someone gave, which I thought was very good, is look for secondhand. Um, in your market, particularly at the start of COVID, it was a lot easier because people were selling office furniture, thinking never, no one was ever coming back to the office. So there were a lot of good deals in our area of people selling seats. So to check around before you spend the thousand dollars plus of whatever it is to get one sent you by Herman Miller, you'll find some great deals out there, particularly office locations. Harshid
3: if you're interested uh, the amia by steel case is a good choice for about 800 bucks or 900 bucks depending on inflation um, it has a lot of adjustability with your arms i sit on it right now the bottom seat pan can be adjusted to tilt forward backwards and then the back has somewhat of a uh, lumbar support but it's uh, it's flexible so you could still rock yourself back and forth and to keep a uh, uh, I guess, uh, body fluids going.
7: Jeff Cohen. I'm sorry to say that um, you're all wrong. And the answer, uh, hopefully you can see this now, is obviously (laughs) a zero gravity workstation where you uh, have no pressure on any body part. And yet you have all of your tools, screens, and and everything you need to work uh, an entire 48 hours straight without getting up. The only choice if you're going to do uh, your job and have
0: abdominal surgery simultaneously. Uh, or dental work, yeah. That's true. Dental work as well. <laughs> Jeff Cohen? <laughs> Jeff, did you want to? Jeff, just, in on just Oh, Jeff, did, I'm, I'm sorry. I, I, I. Why did I get distracted when that image came up on the screen? Why would that have happened? Uh, I tempted. I, I was really lucky back in uh, the day. I, my brother-in-law, a nice guy. Uh, sold a company and, and we weren't expecting that. And he said, Bill, I'm going to buy you a chair. I said, you can buy me a chair. And he said, yeah, any chair you want anywhere. So I actually talked to a friend of mine whose family owned an office supply store for a long time. And they originally were sending me to the Aeron's and things like that. Since I was able to just snap my fingers and purchase at retail, whatever I want, I actually ended up in a steel case leap chair, which is the equivalent, kind of the equivalent of the Aeron from the steel case line. I've had this thing for over 20 years now. And it is still every bit as useful as the day. So I know it seems crazy to be spending this kind of money on a chair. But as I look back, that piece of extreme good fortune really did check a box that for the rest of my life, I've never had an issue with having to sit at um, at my desk for hours at a time knowing that I was well supported. So it is it can be a significant investment if you find the right one that matches you it is a joy for more hours probably than anything else you can do in your life if you're in a circumstances where you have to sit for a long period of time so it's worth paying attention to what how your body is supported while you're working i'm just saying all the chiropractors tell you that, and everybody in uh, sports medicine and everything else it's an
1: important deal next question from Gordon Lake in Los Angeles, California, how easy is it for a non-audio person to learn the X32? Uh,
0: let's start with Tom Ferguson, then go to Marty and Nigel. Tom? Oops, I'm not hearing you, Tom. What? You're muted. Ah, uh, here we go. Uh, with a 40-input, 25-bus mixer, let's say it's not for the faint of heart, because uh, you wouldn't want to start here. Okay, Marty Adius.
3: Well, it used to be that operating a digital mixer required a journeyman's and a master's degree in audio processing and signal flow and ergonomics, but um, it's getting a lot easier. (laughs) But for a non-audio person to start if you were going to start on any digital mixer you know in that class the x32 would be the one there is uh, so much information available on youtube and websites that will show you exactly how to get in and out of that mixer the most important part of operating the mixer is how it's programmed and how it's set up and that's the critical thing it can be incredibly complex, or it can be very easy. And, and it depends on your application. But um, having somebody who knows the mixer show you the ropes would be a uh, really good thing for a non audio person to get started.
5: And we might send you to after hours for that. Nigel? Yeah, so I I got myself an x32 compact for somebody. And my advice to you is it is very doable. But take it slowly. And step by step, I found the best source, as Marty suggested, was, uh, and I put it in the chat, is uh, a chap called Drew Breschler on YouTube. And he has a lot of videos. And so the inputs are going to be fairly simple to understand. But from then onwards, it becomes more complicated. Particularly the thing that I had to watch like 10 videos on and do three times was the routing. So the, so the inputs and the outputs make a lot of sense, but the routings and the buses take time. But I think Drew Breschler's uh, videos are very good. Take it slowly, take it by step. But If I can work this out and I'm not an audio professional, then anybody can. Uh, and then, of course, use office hours and friends to give you advice. But I, before you jump in and have an expert do it for you, which, by the way, com- confuses the heck out of me sometimes. Step by step, bit by bit, do it on your own, power through it. If you're adding Dante in, uh, it adds another set of complexities, but it's not that much more difficult. The other thing I would tell you is, when you watch most of the videos, and there are a lot of them, they use the the X thirty two software, X something something edit software, on their Macs to do the work rather than do it on the board itself, and that's that's another key thing to learn. Guy Cochran.
6: Yeah, this past Christmas, we had a holiday concert at our church, and uh, one of the volunteers brought in his very own XR18, and I'd imagine it's basically the same app and interface, and he was teaching it to me, and he didn't know that I had any experience or much experience in AV, so it it was a joy to have somebody start from the beginning, walk me through, and here's what you need for these nine microphones, and here's how you turn them up on your iPad. So I had the app, he had the app, and we sat side by side, and we were just mixing this, and he was showing me reverb and things like that. But it was very intuitive and very easy to get through, but that was just the 18. And the 18's uh, 600 bucks or something like that, so unless you need all that horsepower, I don't know if I'd be going for the 32 uh, as a beginner. Uh, The XR18 does uh, a a lot of what you need until you're maxing out all those channels. I don't know why you would need that much horsepower to. Uh, Unless you're you're running a big event uh, or something where you really need all those uh, inputs, outputs and buses. Fair enough. Next question.
1: Xander Snell from Miami asking, have you seen the three location live event with audio and video music collaboration Dante did over fiber? I think it was in Atlanta and Nashville.
0: I'm not sure anybody here has. Somebody made a note here. I think was that you, Mitch, that dark fiber is a bit of an oxymoron. I, I that actually yeah, resonates right. with me. You re- Sorry. <laughs> well, I, I was <laughs> hoping Xander
1: didn't hear me say that.
0: <laughs> no, but I—that's I, a you know term of art, I guess. Um, it, Unfortunately, and I note you didn't have a link in there, uh, sometimes we can, if there's a link added with a question at the beginning, we can get a sense of what the thing is we're trying to discuss here. Uh, in this case, I don't think anybody has any specific location information, but if you can pop that in the questions or something like that so people can take a look at what this is, it sounds like it's an interesting topic and one we should at least be aware of, but not for today. Next question.
1: Sorry, Xander. Uh, on to Josh Kaufman in Pittsburgh, PA. For bringing a virtual guest into a live show and meeting, what audio consideration solutions could be used? For example, mix minus, return audio channels, et cetera. Courtney. Although
2: it lacks a lot of inputs, the Roadcaster Pro 2, which I'm using now, uh, has evolved into something that's fairly good for bringing uh external people in because it has a Bluetooth channel that can do mix minus and feed that audio back to the person on the phone. If you bring your, connect your phone via Bluetooth, or you can bring them in. It has a second USB channel as well uh, so that you can hook up another computer, let's say that's on Zoom or Skype and bring them in and do mix minus with that. You have to understand their new router. They have a new uh, uh, route matrix that is now part of the mix but um it's a little complex and you have to learn it and it's uh uh user interface isn't, isn't like many others that use a nodal type interface so it's once you learn the routing it, it's fairly easy to create mix minuses for people that are coming in over phone or over Skype
5: Nigel so it was actually the complexity of mix minuses that pushed me to eken so I, and I appreciate this as sort of a sidebar conversation for a beginner, but if you're doing this for the first time and you're a beginner and the whole idea of doing mixed minuses frightens you, that things like eCam have interview mode, it's part of a, a paid subscription, but they manage all of that for you. And, and if I was going, I think Josh is probably looking for something more sophisticated, but if I was going on a simple entry, that's a great way in.
0: And we're going to move on to the next question. We're getting close
1: to the top of the hour here. From Jeff. Jeff Cohen, <coughs> pardon me. Uh, in Miami Beach and here on our panel, thoughts on using EQ when monitoring voiceover recording to make a given pair of headphones more flat or neutral. For example, my Sony MDR-7506s are a bit bright in the high end. Any sources for specific headphone EQ settings or tools?
7: Jeff Cohen's going to start us off here, Jeff. It's your question, and just yeah, just to elaborate a little bit, you know, I noticed that in those Sony's, for example, I was I was hearing things, and then these Beyer dynamics were recommended, and I don't hear some of those little problems in these, which, uh, and the advice was, okay, if you're not hearing it in these, you know, don't worry about them. So now my choice is buy another one of these for my office, or can I EQ those Sony's to you know, get close to, for instance, what this is, or at least just flatten them out, you know, where they naturally, those headphones like any, have their kind of peaks if you look at the graph. Mitchell?
1: Well, there's a certain irony to this, Jeff, and that is that the reason people buy these headphones is because they have that uh, EQ curve. It's a specific uh, choice in terms of the sound. Um, I would suggest trying a different headset that, uh, that's more to your liking, the more flat, less uh, augmented in the uh, presence range.
0: Yeah, that's exactly why most of us who do voiceover work use 7506s. We're looking to be able to emphasize and, and cut through any, uh, like field environment or something like that. And here when people might misspeak things or have popped P's or splashy S's and things like that. So that presence peak is not a, a bug. It's a feature. And, uh, most people, uh, prize those cans for that specific reason. Marty, real quick, but we're almost at the top here.
3: Right, so the 7506s have an accentuated low end and an accentuated high end, sort of kind of, of a smile EQ, if you were to look at it. Um, they are intended to not be flat, not give you specific sonic quality that's going to be representative of what you hear on speakers, but uh, to allow you to hear flaws more easily. Um, Other headphones, more like the Audio-Technica ATH 50s, the Sennheiser's um, will be flatter and more representative of the actual sound quality that you are recording. Um, However, there are software plugins that you can use to flatten out uh, headphones and even make them sound more like uh, loudspeakers. Um, waves has uh, one, and there's another one that I'm trying to find through my uh, plethora of uh, web bookmarks. Um, Marty,
0: can you look that up for us? I'm, I'm trying to get into the habit of hitting right to the top of the hour. We have less than 15 seconds now because eventually we're going to be hitting uh, this for satellite and things like that. So we are going to move... Um, We're gonna move to the second hour right now and uh, welcome everybody to the next part of Office Hours. This is gonna be fun today because we are gonna be talking about something near and dear to our Wednesday panels. Wednesday is often audio day and we have a lot of audio expertise on the panel. And we are going to be talking about forensics, um, which is really the analysis of audio, particularly looking for flaws and things like that. And the best of those are the ones that can be corrected so that we can put out higher quality audio Uh, than what may be coming into the recorders or mixers or things like that. Uh, We've assembled a great panel of professionals here who are gonna be helping us by talking through your questions. So if you haven't put in your questions uh, about audio issues that you run into in your day-to-day work, please do so today. The Mukana system is active and we've got a variety of questions here to the start. But I thought I would go to Marty here in the beginnings and and can you talk to us a little bit about, uh, you've been an audio practitioner for a long time at the professional level. are things changing? What are you hearing about in terms of things that people want to solve in the modern era uh, through their audio recording and playback systems?
3: Mm. Well, um, a big thing that you know naturally people are, are asking about and trying to improve is is audio quality for web streaming and uh, audio quality for web streaming when you might be in an environment with a live audience in front of you as well. So you your mixing audio for the room and then mixing audio for the stream at the same time. And depending on the kind of programming that you're working with, it might be the same mix. And it might not be if you're doing any kind of music, uh, the streaming mix would be entirely different than the mix for the room. Uh, If you're doing corporate meetings, or if you're doing desktop, as we are here, um, you want to be Looking at the kind of microphone and whether that complements your particular voice and your acoustic environment and keeping the environmental noise down. uh, Any kind of processing that might assist with that, such as noise assist or using um, an an equalizer or a expander to keep the noise down. Um, So there are. so many different microphones that are come out these days and and they each have their own characteristic as we said earlier in the first hour. So all of these things uh, are uh, ways that we can try and improve the quality of our audio, the cleanliness of our audio, the intelligibility, which is ultimately the most important thing.
0: Absolutely. fact, I used to think about when I was doing audio work more than I do it now, um, I always thought of audio equalization, things like that as spice. And even the, the. The microphone that I picked or the processing, how much reverb to add or not. Those things I always thought of as a little bit like the cooking analogy of spice. You know, a a really tasty recipe has just the right amount of everything. Not too much of this, not too little of that. You don't want things to be bland, but you also don't want them to be over seasoned. And I think I hear audio, particularly among young practitioners that, that suffer from both of those things. Either they haven't done anything to make it uh, appropriate for the use. Or they've done too much. They've said, "Oh, I like the sound of a compressor, so I'm going to crank it way up, and then everything will be in this narrow band of dynamic range." But at least I won't miss anything subtle or whatever. And you know, in some circumstances, we've seen circumstances where that that kind of is the sound of things, and it works. But in other things, it can be really fatiguing to listen to for a long period of time. Um, some of our panelists are going to dive in on this here and just a say, in fact, let's let's get into the to your questions because that's what's most important about what we do here. So. Uh, Mitch, what's our first one?
1: From uh, Paul Wallace in Austin, Texas, asking, what do you evaluate your voice objectively to to determine its characteristics and areas that need improving? Are there online tools that do this? Mitch, go ahead and take us into this for the beginning. Oh, gosh, I'm very passionate about this. I said earlier that my uh, voice to me is my instrument. It's the thing that I use the most. And here's the thing. It's not just how it sounds right now in my headsets. It's also how it's going to sound once it goes out Uh, it gets uh, uh, in a production, it gets processed, mixed, and then on a broadcasting medium or a social media medium, whatever. And all of those things contribute to affecting your voice. And I'm very familiar with what things do. Like if it's going to be a broadcast spot, very likely a lot of compression and EQ is going to happen. So I'm sensitive to that. And it's just like I have a baseline in my head to what I should sound like uh, to accommodate most of those situations. So There is no tool per se that I can apply to it, other than my ears and how familiar I am with my own voice. Jeff Cohen.
7: And I think to directly answer that question, you cannot, you cannot objectively evaluate your own voice, because you don't hear yourself the way everyone else hears you, um, unless you're a pro like Mitch but uh, who's shaking his head, no. But I think most of us, I mean, how many times have you or someone else heard themselves recorded back? Who's not used to doing that? And, you know, you were the, oh, my God, I sound like this or that. And then you tell them, no, you sound exactly the same as you do when you're talking. That's how you sound. So I think it's very tough, at least for the average person, to to be objective about their own voice. The best is to ask other folks.
0: Courtney?
2: Yeah, as Jeff said, it's, it's difficult to monitor yourself and determine how you sound. For years, also, I, uh, being a production sound mixer, I found that listening to a mono signal through both ears covered headphones uh changes your perception you perceive a lot more stuff that you uh your brain ignores if you're listening in stereo with sound arriving at both ears independently through the air so um i would uh, it, it gives you a much more detailed listening but listening to yourself um if you're an announcer i usually just put side tone in one ear and i hear myself through the air through the other ear so eventually, you kind of reach a compromise between what others people hear and how you sound to yourself in your own head. So uh, I use that uh, as a guide to you know discovering how you know or controlling my voice uh, when I'm recording, just listening on one ear. That's why a lot of announcers used to that work without headphones and do the old cup the hand to the you know the Gary Owen live you know and tonight Margot the drill you know. He uh, used to do that. Uh, it would give you uh, feedback directly from your mouth to your ear, uh, at least for one ear so you could hear what you sound like.
0: Tom Ferguson. And if you want feedback on how you sound, Mitch, isn't this a place where we do the
1: shameless plug for the reader workshop? Sure, we oh, can, uh, we can plug that. If you, if you want to hear other people's opinions, then believe me, there are a lot of them. Uh, We do a reader workshop uh, every Tuesday at 3 p.m. Pacific, 6 Eastern, where if you want to hear what uh, we have to say about how you sound, come join us. We'll help you out.
0: In my case, since I started in radio at about 20 years old and been doing this for a long, long time, I'm still shocked at how differently I perform in different circumstances, depending on uh, the environment that I'm performing in and the content that I'm working with and my kind of, awakening in that I got booked as the stadium announcer for an indoor soccer team many years ago in uh, Phoenix. And uh, the first time I was on mic there, it really shocked me a couple ways. I've been doing radio for a few years and I thought I was okay as an announcer, but I got to that microphone. And first of all, just speaking into a gigantic crowd of 50,000 people in a room discovering that there was significant delay between what I said into the microphone and what the crowd, and then having the owner of the team constantly coming over to me. They need to be hyped up. Hype them up. (laughs) I would get out of that gig at the end of the soccer game, and I was exhausted. And I was really pushing my voice, and I was, you know, it was like I was wrestling with everything that I said, and it was fatiguing tremendously, and again, this was somebody who'd been doing radio four hours a day for five or six years at that point, and it taught me that every time I sit down to perform uh, vocally, the circumstances are different. Uh, I've been fiddling with doing some audiobook narrations, and that is an entirely different performance style than what I do here on the show. It's entirely different than when I go into a booth to do a commercial, Each of those things have similar characteristics, but it reminds me a little bit about uh, Michael Jordan when he went from being one of the planet's best basketball players to being a decent but not world-class baseball player. He had all the tools and knew how to be an athlete, But the subtleties change as you go from practice to practice to practice. And so that's one of the things I'm mindful. I consider myself still a rookie after 40 years of being an announcer. In some areas of this, I'm still a rookie, and I have to treat myself like a rookie, go back and practice like a rookie, try to learn new thinking, new skills, new mic techniques to maximize what I'm doing in this environment here for this performance. And I don't think I'm going to stop doing that until uh, the day I make my last announcement as somewhere. It's it's a subtle, fun, and exciting art, but it's not always the same. And your mic should—I I believe your mic should adapt with you. Buying a Neumann in your first week of announcing is not going to make you a better announcer. It's just not. You will eventually get to the point, if you are an announcer over and over and over again, thousands of times over days, weeks, months, years— uh, you will get to the point where you can maximize the utility of that fine tool, but it's usually not day one. So that's my two cents about it. Let's go to the next question.
1: Next question in from Zach Phillips in Philadelphia. What are the practical differences in audio quality between the same microphones through a Electrosonic Zaxcom four thousand dollar transmitter receiver and a Sennheiser G four? Courtney Gooden's going to start us off.
2: Well, remember, in all wireless systems, the quality of the microphone preamp is in the transmitter itself, regardless of the preamp you're plugging the output of the receiver into. Uh, the uh, transmitter has the microphone preamp where most noise is likely to leak in. Uh, and so better quality microphones have better quality preamps. The second thing is the the type of transmission. The Zaxcom uh, and the Electrosonic Digitals are digital transmission, whereas the uh, Sennheiser G4 is our analog transmission. That's the old analog uh, way to transmit sound. So your tr- your sound is not converted to digital um, at all. It's transmitted over a UHF uh, channel uh, via analog. So any interference on that UHF channel you're going to hear is noise coming into the to the signal path. So the digital transmission, since it's uh, digitizing and converting that analog to digital before it transmits it. And then it's just sending ones and zeros over the uh, multi-path transmission or over the transmission path. And uh, there's usually a diversity receiver on the other side. So any interference that happens on that transmission side will really be uh, error corrected and filtered out. uh, So you really won't hear any of the transmission interference, the RF interference on the way. It'll just either go away (laughs) or drop out completely. Uh, but you won't hear the noise as you get further away from the receiver, or you turn around, or you get a multipath hit. Uh, so that's one of the big differences uh, between the two.
1: Marty,
3: yeah, you hit it. You hit it on the nose. The preamp in the micro in the transmitter is the most important link in the entire audio chain, um, and following that would be the analog to digital encoder that's used. Um, and along with that, and more related to the preamp, is the voltage, uh, or the voltage rails, how the preamp is designed, how the audio circuit is designed, will uh, determine the dynamic range and the signal to noise ratio um, that go into the analog to digital encoder. And that will in, in turn, determine the frequency response, the dynamic range, etc. So um, uh, the more expensive transmitters will use more expensive components, more expensive chips and more expensive R&D time to really fully develop the digital bitstream that goes over the air and then gets decoded at the receiver.
6: Guy yeah, these guys covered it pretty well. One of the things that we used to do with the G4s and the early electros, we called it the jangling keys test. And so you would just take some keys and you would listen for the artifacts because you would hear this compander, expander, um, artifacting that, that happens on the less expensive models and on the electros, you would hear full full frequency. So to your ears, what you're hearing on same mic, same, uh, same path is, is going to be just, More frequencies. And if you're using something like an SMWB from Lectro, you'll get um, an analog uh, limiter in there. So if somebody's singing or if somebody gets loud all of a sudden, it has a a nice gracious uh, step back down. So it's not very, it's not, it's smooth instead of steppy. Um, The other thing is that you get higher milliwatts with the with the big bad boys you get. Instead of just 30, you're going up to 50, 100, or 250 milliwatts on um, the Electros and on Zaxcom. So uh, depending on what part of the country you're in, you may not be able to use the 250. But so as far as, say, Mike, say if you need to go far, 250 milliwatts will get you there. And then the other thing is... Um, uh, if you need the ability to change that frequency because you start taking a hit because somebody's stepping on your frequency uh, with the uh, Electro and the Zaxcom, you could change that transmitter from from the receiver side. So instead of asking the talent to, you know, especially if you've got that transmitter somewhere buried, it's nice to just be able to, to uh, talk to it through, from afar. Courtney Gooden. Yeah, you know, I think I... Uh, guy
2: hit most of the high points there. I was going to say that, uh, yeah, the, in analog systems, there is compression because the FCC requirements, it's an FM signal. If you get too hot a signal or too high a frequency signal, it's going to have to compress it to avoid from going out of band uh, with FM. And if you go out of band, you're going interfere to in, interfere with other mics on the channel. So they all have uh, compressors or companders that they compress before they transmit and they expand on the receiver. You don't have that with digital transmission. Digital transmission uh, generates usually a 16 or 24-bit or uh, amplitude and full frequency response from 60 to 20,000 or you know, whatever you roll off the low end to 20,000.
0: Thanks very much. We're going on to the next question.
1: From Josh Kaufman in Pittsburgh, PA, Josh asks, what problems are best diagnosed with your ears versus which problems would be best sorted out with meters, analyzers, and other tools?
3: Marty's going to start us off here, Marty. Well, our, our ears are the first and, and most important an, analysis tool that we have. If there is a problem, you will likely hear it first. Um, but meters and analyzers, uh, whether hardware or software, can give us more specific information if we know where to point them to get the information that we need so like um, if you're hearing a noise you know in your signal chain somewhere uh, first thing you want to try and do is is isolate that link in the chain where the noise is originating and then you can use a meter or analyzer depending on the type of noise to try and identify its fingerprint uh, and that might help you zero in on where that noise is coming from, or how to fix it. You know, there are things there, there are noise, in, if you're using a condenser microphone, for instance, uh, and if you have um, if the shield on your on your mic wire is not solid, you will get phantom power noise, uh, which is part of the shielding or could be just Raspy noise, or a variety of different things, but um, you know it could be something as simple as that. You would need to know where to look for that because if you're listening at the end of the signal chain, it could be anywhere in between. But if you're soloing on the mic preamp itself and you still hear the noise, then you know that that noise is coming uh, before that point in the signal chain, which is the wire and the microphone.
1: Mitchell. Uh, this is a use case, but if I walk into a room that's uh, going to need some sound reinforcement or I'm recording in that room, uh, the first time uh, that I walk into the room, the first thing I'm going to do is I'm going to clap my hands and listen. And what I'm listening for are echoes, flutter echoes. Um, I'm getting a, a a poor man's RT60, which is a, a real-time reverb um, effect. If you're hearing a lot of reverb, you got problems. And then you need to resort to the meters and devices um, if you're going to check an SPL or get a real-time analyzer and fill the room up with pink noise uh, or white noise, uh, that way you can see what the frequency response, so you can flatten things out. All of that stuff comes in handy. But first and foremost, your ears and the number one processor, Courtney.
2: Yeah, Mitch is right. Uh, for listening to the acoustical environment, you know, use your ears without listening to the audio chain first to determine, you know, what's what loud noises are going to do and how they react with the environment. Uh, if you're using meters, meters are a good judge of level, but not much else. Uh, if you have transient noise, you know you can get something like this—a little oscilloscope. Uh, you know, for under a hundred bucks, you can put it in your kit, and it's good for audio frequencies. And you can examine things. You can capture uh, snapshots with it. Uh, you can even hook it up to your laptop and get a uh, a bigger display out of it. Um, so it's good for looking at frequencies that may be on the edge of your hearing or beyond your hearing, or especially low frequency rumble things like that. That if if you've got somebody uh, touching a mic stand, your headphones may not be able to re- reproduce that thirty hertz signal, and it may be going down the chain if you're not using a low pass, I mean a high pass filter to uh, to limit it. Uh, so it's good for looking at frequencies. Uh, that are beyond your range of hearing, but may affect the uh, quality of your recording.
0: Following on to what Marty said in the beginning of this, one of the most useful things I think I did in the early part of my career was I used to block diagram all my audio chains just so I knew, you know, here's the mic and it's going into the preamp and it's going into this. And and those rudimentary block diagrams became more and more complex. I added more and more gear. Uh, Just doing those meant that I always understood at least the rudiments of signal flow where is it starting, where is it going, how many things is it going through along the way, and where is it ending up, typically at the loudspeakers in a PA system or maybe the recording deck. And just by having that step-by-step block diagram kind of in my head, really helped me when it came to diagnosing problems to figuring out, let me eliminate the first half of the chain and is it still there? Or well, if it is, it must be in the second half of the chain. So that's one of the things that I grew up with. Let's go to the next question.
1: From Andy Kokendorfer in Vieira, Florida, asking, "How would you measure the acoustic quality of a room?" Marty's going to help us there as well.
3: All right. So, the acoustic quality of a room. Well, how much time do we have? <laughs> you know, <laughs> take a week. It's it's really a, it's really a deep subject, but to simplify it, the. Um, it's really important to understand first that the acoustics of a room, what really affects the acoustics of a room and what we're hearing and what problems there are, we, we tend to think of about the frequency response and, you know, but really what, what's happening is all based in time and, and delays and delivery of audio from point A to point B. Um, because most of the acoustic issues in a room are caused by reflections. And uh, if you have a pair of speakers on a front wall in a room, and they will be, as sound comes out of those, they will be reflecting off the nearest surface, which is usually the side walls, and then you will be hearing sound from each of those speakers directly from the speaker and then off of that reflection. So you will hear that sound twice and within a couple of milliseconds. And that can cause phase responses and cause room reflection, room reflections cause nodal problems. The other part of uh, acoustics is the dimensions of the room and the ratio of the dimensions of the room. So if you're choosing a room, if you're building a room, you really want to avoid or if you're choosing a room, you might have to modify it because the worst thing you can do is is use a room where the length, the width and the height of the room are exact multiples of each other, like 10 by 20 by 30. Um, Because think uh, you think about sound waves having a wavelength at specific frequencies. So a sine wave, right, has a length. And if that, or a multiple of that matches the dimensions of the room, right, so if you have a 10 foot wide room, that roughly matches the wavelength of a 100 hertz frequency. And that will cause a resonance in in that part of the room. And if that's just one dimension, if you have another dimension that is similar or the same, you are doubling the resonances of that room. And that's going to cause frequency issues, but it's all because of time and the and the specific dimensions and wavelengths. Now, um, you can visualize some of these things if you visualize like. uh, Uh, ray tracing, like if you were to put mirrors on the wall and use a laser pointer, or think about your room as a billiard table, right? Um, You're going to start a sound wave, and it's going to reflect off of walls, and then where's it going to go from there? And then where are you sitting? And and how are those all of those reflections going to intersect with where you're sitting? Now there are tools Okay, other than your ears and your visualizations to get more exact information. And um, it's a very deep subject. And it, there's a, a pretty good learning curve um, to these some of these things. But uh, one of them is called a room EQ wizard. This is a free tool that is extremely powerful has lots of information. And what this will show you is a spectrogram of of the room. And, and for for these things, you need to use a very specific microphone called a measurement microphone, right? Um, which is an extremely flat omnidirectional microphone, has no characteristics of its own. And so it's just hearing and telling you truly what um, what the sound is like in the room. So there are a bunch of different, uh kinds of information and graphs that this program will show you and it will show you frequency response it will show you time delays so those reflections that i talked about Uh, this will show you an impulse response so if you were to go through your speakers uh it will show you that first impulse from directly from the speakers, and then the reflections and all the other reflections. So it will show you phase, it will show you uh, frequency response, and it will show you time. So that's a pretty good uh, tool to use. And it's free. And there's lots of information on that site to learn how to use it as well.
0: That was a, that was a great initial class in how all this works. The other thing I'm asked about a lot, particularly for people who wanted to do some kind of announcement in their in their home office or something like that, is soundproofing, which is different than sound treatment. Marty's been talking about the incredibly important part of sound treatment inside a room. If one of your problems is you've got traffic outside and you can't open a microphone and do uh, your zooms because it's just too loud. Soundproofing, is more, it, it, it's more costly generally to try to treat, but it's the second leg of this two-part thing that most people want to do. Courtney?
2: Yeah, Marty covered everything very uh, confidently there. It's a, a good explanation of the tools that you can use to analyze the acoustic environment. A few quick pointers is uh, if you don't have a lot of tools and you just look at your acoustical environment, you want to look for reflective surfaces that are parallel to each other, and that can create what's called a standing wave. And depending upon the distance between those parallel surfaces determines the uh, resonance of the standing wave so it can generate uh, tubbiness or something or, or a longer echo because the sound bounces back and forth back and forth back and forth back and forth and uh, increases the uh, echo time of the room so what you want to do is at least if you can if it's if the walls are not on camera or even if they are and you want to treat them. Treat at least one of the parallel walls will cut down on the standing waves and the resonance of the room. So it'll sound uh, less enclosed and less uh, confined uh, if you eliminate a lot of those standing waves. So that's just one uh, good rule. If you have a parallel ceiling and floor that are reflective, put a carpet on the floor or uh, try and cover the ceiling with uh, furniture pads as Alex has done if if you've seen his uh, treatment in his room. Uh, pictures of that, he's got himself surrounded with furniture pads on a grid there that eliminate the uh, standing wave echo. I don't want to spend too much more time on this, but Marty,
0: a quick thought and Mitchell, a quick thought.
3: Yeah, another tool that's used very often is a real-time analyzer or an RTA. And this shows you frequency response, could be from a microphone that's sitting in a room, and um, <clears throat> but this is very limited information. Uh, st- just looking at frequency response, it will show you that, and it may show you, or you will be may be able to recognize um, a- abnormalities like comb filtering, right? Which you, which will you'll see as a series of sharp dips in the frequency response from low to high. But you need to look at um, the time time domain in order to really figure out whether that is truly a a comb filter due to reflections or if it's something else. Um, And uh, just uh, also important to note is that if you do have comb filtering due to reflections, uh, that's not something that can be EQ'd out.
0: And uh, that should take us to the next
1: question. Walt Palmer in Lewis, Delaware. Is there a method to adjust noise gates on Zoom? Talat is complaining they can't low-level bumper music cues.
7: Jeff Cohen. Depends, obviously, on what uh, audio equipment you have and, and what software you have. Um, if you don't have uh, equipment, gear, that specifically lets you do that, one thing I'm, I'm loving so far, uh, especially once they get a little bug fixed, is Zoom. Uh, and I mentioned this last week. Zoom released a new feature in the audio settings in the standard desktop client, uh, which is called Use Specific Audio Input Channels. And that really opens up a lot of possibilities of what you can do purely through software. So, um what I'm doing, for instance, uh, trying that, and and so far it seems to be working fairly well. And let me see if I can uh, show this to you guys. Is, um, uh, uh, oh, sorry, let me show this screen and hide you guys. I'm using a Daw, so on, uh, on on my computer, I'm running a Daw. My my Daw of choice is Reaper, and uh, I can we're not seeing f- anything yet, Jeff. I, I don't know if you have screen sharing okay. and I mean, and so what i'm doing and i'm going to show you that in a minute um is is i'm i'm routing now as long as your interface has a loopback feature if it just has some kind of loopback feature uh or if you use it in conjunction with software like uh, rogue amoeba's loopback you can get it through that and then you can route that um into your DAW and then from there oh and here I can share you this one right here which is the routing and uh, let me know if you guys see that. Do you see the yeah, routing yes. on this? Okay. And so this is my dog in Reaper, uh, has the ability to route audio coming in. So it's, it's getting my entire interface, all the channels on my interface, which are the uh, columns here. And ordinarily, the mic would go to Zoom. And, and previously, Zoom was notorious for, it wouldn't ask. It would just take every channel Your interface, whatever you've selected, whether you want it to or not. But now that you can select channels, uh, I'm I'm routing my audio in my DAW just to the loopback, and now in my DAW I have I could run a plugin, I can run a limiter or whatever, EQ, etc., and then you route that, uh, and then in Zoom you only take the loopback channel, or again, something from Rogue Amoeba, uh, loopback software, and you only let Zoom have that channel. So it's not getting your mic or your computer audio, whatever you want to route, it'll go through DAW or any other kind of software mixer that lets you use plugins or effects. And now you can only select that channel to go through in Zoom. So pretty cool feature.
1: Mitch? Uh, Zoom does a great job of noise reduction um, but the problem is it can't tell the difference between low-level music and a bumper or sweeper that you're using there, Walter. So well, what I would suggest doing is literally turning original sound on and dealing with any background noise, because in most cases, that's the quick fix to uh, allow the music cues to be heard.
0: Next question.
1: Next question from Jeff Cohen in Miami Beach, and right here on our panel. Follow-up to the first question. Has anyone used the Angry Audio Chameleon C3 headphone processor? Its purpose is simulating the sound of an over-the-air processor in the broadcaster's headphone. Experiences or thoughts on their premise? Jeff Cohen.
7: It's interesting. A uh, Good timing. I, w- I was actually going to ask this anyhow, uh, but when you guys, uh, Mitch and Bill, were talking about um, how you hear yourself, and then, of course taking into account really only from experience of what that raw audio in your headphones is gonna sound like once it goes through, especially if you're a live broadcaster or streamer. And uh, George the Tech, uh, audio engineer, uh, panelist that appears on the show, uh, has to be, by the way, jokingly said, when I was asking him about headphones, uh, jokingly said, oh, look at this um, angry audio uh, amp. Uh, joking because it's eight hundred dollars. so I'm not going to pay eight hundred dollars just for this amp. But it's an interesting premise. I'm curious, especially what the you know uh, the pros here, the the broadcasting pros think, because the premise is okay. It's not the real audio chain that's going out over the air, or but we'll simulate. Close to it so that you can really hear and adjust your voice accordingly as you're speaking live of approximately what it will sound like through the processor that goes live
1: on air. Uh, Mitch. Well, Jeff, I'm sorry to say, and I'm a big friend of uh, Catfish, um, no self-respecting mixer or recordist would use a processor like that that changes the EQ and the compression and everything. But any radio person would love it because we like compression and we like all that sound that it uh, adds and it makes us sound more powerful. So the, the use case for that particular device is uh, it used to be that we could just uh, pump in the music uh, coming over the airwaves on our FM station uh, into our cans and hear all that processing and play with the music and just sound powerful. Um, but today you can't do that because most processors have a huge latency uh, tax to them. So this this is basically just simulating what the processing would do. And Cornelius Gold is the designer of the particular audio chain in the Angry Audio Chameleon. And Cornelius' name is familiar because he does a lot of the uh, original uh, Telos devices. So he understands what the, the DJs want to hear. So not good for a reference, but makes you feel great as a DJ.
0: I have to tell an anecdote when I was first starting out, we trained to be announcers and announcers came from the era when most of the audio chains in the world were pretty lousy. I mean, you were on AM radio, uh, you didn't have the full bandwidth. And if you're playing a record beneath an announcer, the announcer had to be way on top of that record. So I spent my first, maybe six or seven years as a radio guy doing radio announcer. And then nobody wanted to hire radio announcer people. When when the the industry changed, everybody wanted the guy next door. They wanted you to be less formal, more conversational, more real. Uh, And I lost tons of work. And I literally had to change everything about my style of being an announcer to be more real and to get away from announcer. And so I see the same kind of thing happening uh, with Zoom. Alex talks, and I agree with him 100% on this, for long-term listening uh, in the kind of function we are here, all of us who came out of that radio thing, we come in thinking I need the compressor and I need booming and I want to be really up above everybody else and solid and clear. And he has kind of set the standard here. We want to be more real. We want to sound like real people. We do not want that highly compressed radio sound here because it does get fatiguing. And it particularly gets fatiguing in a panel circumstance like this where we have so many different voices with different timbres and different levels of, um, I don't know, if I, I hate to use the word professionalism because that's not really what it is. It's, it's realness. Uh, Some of us are former radio people, and we sound a bit like that because that's who we actually are. But we're not trying to sound like an announcer, and we're not trying to sound like something other than authentically who we are, which I think, and and this is what I've learned from Alex in this respect, that's easy to listen to over the course of time. If you get a sense that you're listening to somebody and that's who they really are, then you can relate to that. If it seems like it's somebody who's putting on bombast or putting on trying to be funny or putting on something else, and that's not who they really are, it comes across as inauthentic. And that's not our goal here on Office Hours. Uh, We'll leave that for the crazy game shows on TV and stuff like that. Mitch, you had more thoughts?
1: 837 in the Pacific Northwest area, (laughs) and the temperature is 72 degrees. Um, yeah, that's what, yeah. that's what Bill's referring to. And I'm kind of stuck with that to a certain degree, but here's the thing. All is not lost bill because, uh, I do this, uh, voice, uh, thing on voice jungle and uh, I put my, te- my, uh, demo in there, which by the way, had no spots that sounded like I just did. And I'm getting car dealerships from all over the country. I have no idea why, except that they tell me that they want that old AM radio announcer voice. And I say, I say to them, whatever, every time I do a bunch of them. Do you know that there's a 68-year-old guy screaming his lungs out for the particular Ford, whatever? And um, at the end of the session, I have to press the veins back in my neck to get back to normal. There's still some use for us uh, old radio announcers.
0: Everything old becomes new again. Everything new becomes old. It just—it's constantly back and forth.
2: Courtney, your thoughts? Uh, well, being an old radio announcer, yes, I have the same problem. I would not use this angry audio ch- chameleon unless you are actually broadcasting on FM radio. Um, because uh, there's no need to to listen to that type of compression. That type of compression is mandated by the FCC to keep you in band. And uh, because if you go too loud, you're going to go impinge on somebody else's frequencies and cause interference on neighboring channels. So, they have to, they're required to have the limiter in there. And uh, it gives you a compressed uh, sound. And it's great if you want to hear what you sound out, like out there. But if you're not broadcasting, you don't, probably don't want that kind of sound to be recorded. Uh, you want full frequency response sound and uh, not a compressed dynamic range. So, um, I would not use it in your headphone chain unless you're you're going to end up emphasizing too much stuff in the wrong direction in your recording if you're not transmitting.
0: Yeah, I'm going to support that. As a matter of fact, uh, whenever I use compression on spots that I send out to people, I have to be super careful about background noise and background sound and noise floor because the compression will take both the content that I want, the signal, and the noise that I don't want, and it will increase them all. So unless my chain is beautifully clean... Uh, adding compression sometimes makes things worse, not better. Uh, Courtney and then Jeff. Oh, Courtney just spoke. So Jeff.
7: Right. And, and I think to to Courtney's point there, and I just heard about this and yes, it seems like really only relevant for someone who's really broadcasting, you know, again, maybe on the radio or maybe that has a similar chain if they're live streaming. Um, but it's not that, that uh, as I understand it, is the difference. It's not part of the recording chain or the broadcast. It's only what the person is hearing in their headphones and just an attempt to let them hear as as closely similar to what's actually going out live. So so it's a fake
0: return for them. So they sound better in their headphones than they do actually going out. not that. would be interesting. Uh, Mitch, you had one last thought before we move on.
1: Here. Yeah, real quick. Uh, if If I was a posting guy and I was posting uh, commercials that were going to run on the radio, I would find it useful just to pump it through there, just to hear what the final mix sounded like and what it will sound like on the radio because it'll simulate um, the, uh, what'll happen to the mix after it gets uh, over the airwaves.
0: Fair enough. Next question.
1: John Snyder in Reno, Nevada asking, for my work PC, I use the PC headphones out into my Flow 8 exactly every 60 seconds. I hear a series of 20-ish chirps like a stopwatch alarm. With headphones straight into the PC, the audio mutes during those chirps white noise to silence. Suggestions?
6: Ooh, Guy, you had a thought? Yeah, I'd be interested in what kind of cable that is that's coming out of. It's a 3.5 millimeter unshielded long cable. Uh, You could be picking up some kind of noise along that route. Uh, I had this problem the other day, so I put a link in the chat to my solution was this 1199 TechRise adapter that I happened to have laying around, so I I choose that as my USB output uh, for the speakers, and then I plug the 3.5 millimeter. I actually switched to a different cable, too. kill killed two birds with one stone, so I went to a, a smaller 6-inch uh, cable, and now that goes into my Mixpre, and that goes into my aux, so I, I'm able to get clean sound and actually put it as line level. So... Sometimes when you're you're at mic level on a long run like that with an unshielded cable, you're just picking up all kinds of interference and noise as that's probably what it is, something nearby. And those cards that are in cheap PCs, I mean the 3.5 millimeter output's kind of an afterthought, you know, 50 cent part or some if uh that. So you're not dealing with a high quality piece, you might want to just step up and get something even better than the tech rise. It's a true line level. Mitch Hill.
1: Yeah, I agree with Guy. Never, ever, ever use a headphone out on a PC as an input on a mixer. Just don't do it. Jeff Cohen.
7: And it makes me think, you know, not to stereotype, he mentions PC. You always have to be cautious with a PC of what bloatware came installed on that. And there are some programs, audio programs, that you may have had a trial for and now that's expired. And so they could be intentionally inserting that noise until you buy the license or stop running that software. Courtney? Well, the problem is most of uh, the headphone outputs on most PCs
2: these days, is all it's a chip that's mounted on the motherboard, and on that motherboard, there's a variety of high-frequency signals that are flying around and interfere with the analog side of that, that amplifier. Once it's converted from digital to analog, it's, it exists in the analog world, and it's running across that motherboard. And so these high frequencies can sometimes create artifacts that end up down in the audible range. And it can be a high frequency generated by your processor accessing a a memory bank or, or, you know, doing... Regular housekeeping duties that can cause those uh, periodic uh, beeps that are demodulated down to lower frequencies that are beat frequencies of its original high frequency sounds. So, unless you have you you put a uh, low pass filter to to eliminate everything above twenty thousand uh, before it gets to the analog, and you usually can't protect this unless you put a mu metal shield or something over the analog side of the processor and external audio cards that go into a slot are a better better choice for this because then they can put those metal shields over the analog section before they go out. Uh, so the solution to this would use a USB output. You shouldn't hear those because it's going uh, direct digital out of the computer and those frequencies can be eliminated before they are converted back to analog.
1: Hopefully that helped you. John, next question. From Douglas Carmichael asking, how do you use SMART or similar tools to set up a PA? Marty Adius.
3: Well, um, what SMART is, is a measurement system that is time based. It is um, uh, based on the Fast Fourier Transform, FFT. Uh, and it's very similar to what I showed earlier, uh, Rumi Q Wizard, uh, except that it is a higher end product. It is a purchase product and there are different levels. It can cost, you know, six hundred dollars to purchase. And what you do in a venue is once you get your speakers hung up, mm-hmm. you have one or more measurement microphones that you set out in the audience area. And you will take multiple measurements of uh, time based and frequency based. And you will look at things like reflections. You will look at coverage, specific coverage area, and you'll look at phase response uh, because you do will be working with multiple loudspeakers, usually in a line array, um, and you want to look at how well those The sound from each of those different speaker boxes is combining and whether there's any phase interference and uh, you want to make sure that the front row is being covered the back row is being covered and every place in between and these are the tools that can you can use to get measurements and displays that will show you exactly what your sound system is doing and um, help you to determine how to improve it.
1: There you go. Douglas, hope that helped. Next question. Another one from Stephen Montaigne in Madison, Wisconsin. What are your go to apps and plugins to clean up audio when you receive files from a client for post production editing with background noise, appliance hum, wind, et cetera?
0: Mitchell, you want to give us some thoughts?
1: Post is great because uh, you don't have to deal with latency issues, and there's a lot of plugins that work great. Uh, Waves has a Clarity line that uh, they're excellent and available on SoundGrid as a real-time plugin. And um, I go to my go-to plugins in post are from Izotope. They've got a ton of different things available for you.
0: And the good news is that most of the NLEs, if you're talking about making videos, you said post-production editing, so I'm assuming you're heading out to something like that. You may be doing audio. Yeah, all those Waves plugins. there's tons of things, uh, the Logic stuff uh, for the Mac side. Um, post-production gives you a variety of very good tools, and people are making new ones all the time. It's really uh, the plug-in wonderland out there continues to grow. And everything from de-clicking to uh, breath control, popped pee suppression, a lot of those things that are common problems that you need to fix in post. uh, Appliance Hummer, good example, 60-cycle hum, the low frequency of wind. Those are kind of known, and so people have specific things that can address those. And often those appear in our regular editing software. Also, the
1: cedar. C-suite, which I believe Bill is using right now to reduce... Time. I am.
0: I had a lot of trouble with uh, the sounds of fans and things like that in my space here, so I just added that. Um, and it has done an excellent job of keeping the noise floor behind me down and keeping my voice out in front of it. So, uh, yeah, there, there's a variety of things that go from just, you know, 15 or 20 bucks for a plug-in all the way up. I think the C-suite cost me somewhere around 350 bucks, but it does a particular task beautifully based on technology. It's been around for a long time. And if you have the problem, I never, never suggest going out and buying something to solve a problem you think you might have because we talk about it here on the air. You should really listen to what's going on and see that you actually have the problem and then you address that problem. This should always be bespoke solutions, not just because everybody says that they've got too, you know, an air conditioner always makes noise. You know, some of them don't make much noise, and some of them make a lot of noise. And so you're going to tune your solution to what your actual environmental circumstances are. It seems to me always the best way to do things. Uh, let's go to the next question.
1: Dave Tropman in Edmonton, Canada. Where would one acquire a measurement mic, and how much do they usually cost? Marty's going to help us out here.
3: All right. Measurement microphones are um, fortunately very uh, uh, plentiful these days. Uh, You can get, if you go up to your favorite um, audio retailer online, uh, you can find them from DBX, uh, Behringer, Earthworks, uh, Sonarworks and uh, audix mike w is a is an interesting one uh even pv <laughs> they all have them and but they come in different classes so there's class generally class two and class three uh class two microphones will run you every anywhere from 35 dollars to um a few hundred dollars like 600 dollars uh class three microphones will run you Generally over a thousand dollars, and they're uh, more accurate, of course. Then um, that's where you can look for them.
0: There you go. Next question
1: from Josh Kaufman in Pittsburgh, PA, asking what's the best audio triage for remote guests given just thirty to sixty minutes? Besides the position and proximity of the mic, potential adjustments to the room, positioning, MacGyver-style diffusion and absorption techniques for last-minute heroics. Mitch Hill. It sounds way too uh, dramatic for me to deal with. But anyhow, um, I like a dual mic system. I like a boom and a lav uh, in general if you're doing an interview with somebody because there's always that last-minute thing that you did not expect. It could be uh, a problem with the RF on your wireless system. Uh, it could be an air conditioner you didn't anticipate being turned on and you can't turn it off Um if you have two mics you can just sort of figure figure out which one's going to work better and if you're recording you always have something as a backup to go to uh, other than that um a lot of nervous and maybe smoking and other things we'll just
3: read it out. <laughs> marty well if we're talking about a remote guest so somebody who is at home uh going to be you know talking in a show in a zoom show or, or some other platform um probably don't have a lot of flexibility in having them move to a different location in the room. Um, But uh, I would inquire what equipment we have to work with, what kind of microphone they have, what's their interface? uh, You know, what computer are they using? And whether there are might be any tools, you know, within the interface, some interfaces have quite a bit of digital signal processing already built into them like eqs and dynamics controllers uh, that you know they may not even be aware of that you can probably uh, help them tweak to get a better signal and clean it up some Um, of course you know we talk a lot about clutter behind us uh, diffusing sound so we don't get those kinds of reflections uh, working out of a corner instead of between two walls. Getting the microphone closer, a variety of things that you can do. Uh, 30, 60 minutes is not a lot of time to work with because, you know, if you really wanted to move them around, that, you know, would take a lot longer because there's lots more than microphones to go with them. Courtney, real quick.
2: Yeah, the thing you start with is move the microphone closer because the signal to noise ratio is based on the distance you are from that microphone. And um, if you. You know, have to keep the microphone clear of the shot, then uh, you want to maybe adjust your shot so that you can get the microphone a little closer. You might want to put it underneath as opposed to overhead. Uh, or if they have a lav, you might want to lo- move the lav up so it's just below the chin line so that the chin isn't uh, interfering with the path of the sound from their mouth to the microphone. And um, if they have time to hang a blanket or something to reduce the acoustics and make sure that they turn off their phones, Turn off anything that's making noise in the room. If there's a mini fridge or something that they can unplug, unplug it. Uh, anything and windows, close the windows so that they're not making, uh, you're not hearing noise from the outside like the garbage crew that we usually hear on my microphone on Fridays. So those are simple so, things. Yeah,
0: there's a good, good basic list. Next question.
1: Douglas Carmichael asking in an article about the Red Hot Chili Peppers Unlimited Love Tour... Front of house engineer Toby Francis said his Yamaha PM5000 analog console has, quote, much faster transits, unquote, than digital consoles. What specific positive sonic impact would that create? Mitchell? Uh, here's the thing uh, analog is great because it's been around for so long. Digital's coming on, and most people think that the newer is better. A lot of uh, audio engineers would argue that their favorite analog processor or EQ. Or, classic uh, tube amplifier, or whatever it might be, um, has a certain character to it. And we go by character for the most part in the audio world. So, uh, for example, I have a, I just bought it. I bought a Neve 8801 uh, channel processor for my U87. It's an analog device based on the 8 series uh, Neve console designed by Rupert Neve, and it has a very specific sound. Uh, so, I prefer that. I think in this case, uh, Mr. Francis uh, is uh, enjoying his PM5000 because he's very used to it, loves the EQ or whatever, and it just has a certain sound that he's going for. Courtney, real quick.
2: Well, faster audio transients means you get more um, harmonics in the signal, and it gives you a richer sound, so maybe that's what he's talking about. So the high frequencies uh, have sharper edges on them. They generate more harmonics, lower harmonics, and it can give you a fuller sound.
0: You know, I'm going back to the food analogy. You know, uh, you can go into a fine restaurant and their meatloaf can be fabulous, but you can still go, yeah, but it's not like my grandma's. And you're right, it's not, and you have a taste profile that you're trying to recapture from something that is emotionally resonant to you, and the new thing doesn't taste like the old thing, and, and it's the new equipment doesn't sound exactly like the old stuff, and people love that and want to go back and capture it, but that doesn't mean that either of them can't do the job beautifully. That's my two cents on it. Next question.
1: Next, next question coming in from Paul Wallace in Austin, Texas, asking for a friend because I hear things okay, but... What is the sweet spot for hearing aids these days, price and performance?
7: Ooh, that's a big one. Jeff Cohen, real quick. I love that he first clarified it's not for him. He doesn't. is just, you know, asking for a friend. But I love this category. Uh, Leo Laporte's been talking about this for a long time, the the convergence of smarter and smarter earbuds, you know, like AirPods and then so on. Um because of all the functionality they keep getting. And and the FDA has actually been dealing with this issue, and just a few months ago, November of last year, formally adopted the new law, I guess it is, uh, which is that companies are allowed to market um, basically over-the-counter hearing aids, anything deemed a hearing aid without um, having to go to an audiologist. So um, so it's dramatically decreasing the price of of how much hearing aids are, are going to be. And the functionality of some of these things are amazing with companion apps on your phone. They can model mm-hmm. the acoustics of your ear. They can model the room and, and tune it every bit as good uh, almost as an audiologist. So Bose, I'll just say one of them real quick. There's one, uh, the audio is, is done by Bose. It's called the Lexi B2. And, and the fact that they're combined with, uh, they're also just earbuds. So you can, you know, be sitting there and listening to music or this show while you're in a meeting and, and, you know, Hey, uh, these are my hearing aids. So I, I love it by the time I need them. Uh, I can't wait to get some of these.
0: Okay. Uh, Thank you all for on the audio panel today for doing a fabulous job of helping everybody go through this. Uh, we've got about two minutes left and I got to do the credits and that in here. Team opportunities. Don't forget, if you're interested in being a panelist, think you're ready, join the panel. Uh, office Hour Show production team is there for you. So uh, give us a shot and you might enjoy this. If you want to volunteer for the NAB production team, that happens April 17th, 18th and 19th. You can sign up in the daily email going out there. The after hour schedule today, Square TV's application lab, Let's see what else is happening. Uh, The Canva and Keynote Lab later today, that's Wednesday at 1 30. Uh, Conversations with Tony Mobley's pre show is tonight. The Isadora Lab with L. Wilson Spyro tomorrow at 10 a.m. We've got the panelists and potential panelists meeting at 11 a.m. that day as well. Uh, There are other things coming up. We want to say a special thanks to everybody who's been here on the panel. Oh, don't forget, tomorrow our own Guy Cochran, who's in the panel today, is going to be doing the One Button Studio. It's going to be a fabulous look at what's happening um, in that space. Um, I was in the midst of thanking all the people who are on the panelists. We couldn't do this show without you. I also want to say thank you to the people in the back end who quietly sit there and make this show possible every day. Remember when the credit rolls at the end of this. These are the people who are bringing this show to you every day, and we appreciate all their hard work on the back end. And finally, and not to be mistaken, all of those of you who are watching the show, who submitted all the questions that made this possible today, none of this would be at all possible without you. That said, it's time to roll the credits. Thank you for watching, and uh, we'll see you tomorrow. Okay, let's see how close to 30 seconds this takes and whether I'm ending on time or not. Bananas, Smithy, ago, 304 million bananas. What's the sound of 304 million bananas? Oh, you're right. I didn't do the Tloc traversal. 33,691 miles. We virtually traveled today.
2: Gotta stretch and keep it going. 33,000. That's 33, 000. Need Ouch, that classic object there. I needed
0: to start earlier. It's nine o'clock and seven seconds, so I was five seconds ten seconds over. Okay, a job, Bill. Thanks, nice everybody.
2: Job, Bill. Nice work, y'all. Bye. Audio's.